y'all ready for Judges? Because I am ready for Judges. We are uh, diving into this book. Very excited about it. Um, our topic today is why are we going to do Judges? Why is Judges in the Bible? We had to figure that thing out because otherwise we're going to waste a lot of time together this fall. I mean, why do Judges? Why is Judges in the Bible? All right, perhaps you've heard the media buzz over some comments that Victoria Osteen made recently. Am I pronouncing her name correctly? Okay, good, thank you. Uh, she's the wife of Joel Osteen, or Osteen, co-pastor with her husband of the megachurch Lakewood in Houston, Lakewood Church. Okay, she told her massive congregation recently, and this is what all the buzz is about, uh, that their devotion, our devotion to God is not really about God, but it's really about us. It's really about them, as she spoke to her congregation. She said, I just want to encourage every one of us to realize when we obey God, we're not doing it for God. I mean, that's one way to look at it. We're doing it for ourselves, though, because God takes pleasure when we're happy. I mean, that's the thing that gives him the greatest joy. And then she continues, and she says, so I want you to know this morning, just do good for your own self. Uh, Do good because God wants you to be happy. When you come to church, when you worship him, you're not doing it for God, really. You're doing it for yourself. Because that's what makes God happy. Amen. And the congregation responds, amen. Right? Okay. So what's the big deal about these words? (laughs) I mean, why are these a big deal? Is Is the desire for happiness a big deal? Is the craving and the longing for happiness what's wrong with her words? What's wrong with her words? Did you know that the book of Judges is filled with people hungry for happiness? I mean, people that are pursuing (laughs) promised land. And you know what that literally means? It literally means land flowing with milk and honey. It's kind of like the land is soaked and saturated with pleasure. In prosperity, it drips peace. (laughs) Judges is loaded with people that are pursuing promised land and seeking shalom, a place that's loaded with life, a place that's the way it ought to be. You know, C.S. Lewis in his work, The Weight of Glory, said, you know, everyone, everyone is knocking on a cosmic door their whole life, hoping it opens and lets us in. Quote, man, this is our inconsolable secret, isn't it? End quote. What's on the inside of the door? Home. Home. Judges acknowledges that every single person that lives this earth struggles to get home. And we have this interesting dynamic that goes about us. It's like, it's really sad. I mean, we see it in ourselves. We see it in our loved ones. We see it in the world. Everyone's knocking, but no one's entering. Everyone's going, but no one arrives. So if that's you, (laughs) If you know what it's like to struggle in your bones to get home, 
Judges is for you. You know why? Because Judges wants to lead you home. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. Now I'm going to do some editorial. Where's the speaker? He's Denton, you're going to hate me. Come on up here, brother. While we're looking at this passage, I'm going to leave my Bible up here for you. Here's what I'd like us to do. Because when we read it in the first service, I didn't like it. So we're going to do it this way. I want you to do number one, one through three, okay? When you're done with that, look at me, and I'm going to tell you what to do next. Okay. All right? Here we go. Bear with me. Judges 1, uh, verses 1 through 3. 3. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simon, Simeon, his brother, Come up with me into the territory allotted to me, that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I will likewise go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Okay, now we're going to go 16. No, actually, I want you to go 17. So Judy and Simeon. Okay. And then go down to um, 21. All right. And Judah went to Simeon, his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites, who inhabited Zeph- Zephath and devoted it to destruction. So the name of the city was called Hormah. Judah also captured Gaza with its territory, and Ashkelon with its territory, and Ekron with its territory. And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country. But he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain, because they had chariots of iron. And Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said, and he drove drove out from it the sons of Anak. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. Okay, so then the next paragraph goes, Joseph, uh, his tribe, goes up to the city, and instead of destroying it, he forms a treaty with it, with one person in particular. So you imagine this joker, he betrays his whole city, he goes scot-free, and then the joke on Israel is, he just renames the city Luz again, just like the one they just destroyed. Then, I just want you to read this, this phrase right here. Okay. Manasseh. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Bethshean. Okay. Now go up here to 28. When, uh, they, when Israel grew strong. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. Okay. And then just this phrase right here. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites. That's verse 29. And then in case you missed it in verse 30. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron. Hmm. Now we go to 31. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko. Now we go to 33. Nephtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh. This is incredible. And then we go down to uh, 34. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country. 35. The Amorites persisted in dwelling in Mount Harry's. Now go to 1 through 5 and we're done. Okay. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you, shall, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, 
I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept, and they called the name of that place Bochum, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. This is the word of God. Thank you, brother. Peace. Please be seated, y'all. Oh, God, we thank you for your word. We ask for your spirit now to help us. Ask your spirit to help me preach. Ask all of us for your spirit to help us hear and to hear deeply the kind of hearing that rumbles the deep in our life and changes us. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Okay, why is Judges in the Bible? Why is it here? Now, I I need to do this right up front because it has to happen. Every time Judges is read, personally, when you read it, every time you study it, or when it's taught, or when it's preached, right when you open this text, a huge elephant comes into the room. You can't help it. It happens every time. And most time, you listeners that listen to people like us talk about the scriptures, you're just way too polite and too nice. You let us get away with it. You just let it happen. You let us sit up here and smile and nod and everyone says amen. And no one acknowledges the elephant. You don't say, dude, look at the elephant over your shoulder. Why aren't you dealing with that? It's in the text. And you, you, you don't, because you're nice people. And I, I appreciate that you're nice people like that. So here's my attempt to dress the elephant in judges. We're going to do it after the Extravagant Grace Conference. We have these scenic side trails that we do sometimes when we're in a book we're preaching because we come to difficult parts in the text and sometimes the difficult parts in the text are so difficult and so naughty that a sermon is not best equipped to deal with it so we got to have these scenic side trails where we will tackle those issues but we'll do it like on a Sunday night for those of you that are really really interested in it so I want to point out here's the elephant are you ready is judges ethnic cleansing Is Judges Imperial Conquest? Oh, that's a big elephant. You can't read Judges without asking this question. What are we to make of liquid extermination of a people and a land endorsed by God? I mean, how does the church deal with that? I mean, do we, um, do we do WWJD? What would judges do? Do we do that? And next thing we know, we're in the Crusades and we're bombing abortion clinics? Please hear me. No, we don't. But we need to find out why we don't. And we need to be able to wrestle with this kind of text because this is the kind of text for those of you that are my kids, you're going to go to school and some guy or some lady is going to tear the scriptures apart because of this passage, because of the book of Judges. So it's here. <laughs> we have to deal with it. So come, let's deal with it. Here's a related question. What does the extermination of the Canaanites say about God? What does it say about who he is and about his justice? What does it say about his grace? And then another related question, further related, a little more down there, is there's still a holy land today? How are we supposed to see Israel spiritually and politically? I know you guys are thinking, you're nuts, Jeff. And the answer to that is, I know that. 
It's a deep character flaw of mine, but we have to do this. We have to tackle this question because it's there. So I'm telling you, I'm not cowering out. If you want to know, we're going to deal with that, and we'll deal with it in a couple weeks. We'll do it on a Sunday night, and we'll make sure we publicize it, okay? All right, so let's back to why is Judges in the Bible. Judges is a world over 3,000 years away. How can a world over 3,000 years away help you? How is it going to help me? Once upon a time, there was a guy named Joshua, and he dies. And then there's the first kings that happened in Israel. That time between Joshua's death and these first kings is the world of judges. It's a rich terrain. It has a deep storyline. It has breathtaking views. It has the lowest of lows that you'll probably ever see in the Bible and some of the highest of the highs. It's an adventure that you have to buckle your seatbelts and put on your crash helmets because you might not survive it. It's that kind of book. So, where were we? Once upon a time. At this time that we are in the world of Judges, 90% of the promised land is really milk and honey. You know what that means? 90% of the promised land is conquered. It's won. It's, it's, the Canaanites have been defeated. That means at the time of the judges, there's only 10% of the land still needing to be won. That's it. Think about that. We're at a point where these folks have seen God through Joshua-led victory see supernatural outrageous intrusions of God where 90% of the land is driven out and defeated and they won and it's milk and honey right now in their mouth and their lips and their families and their relationships and all they have is 10% that's not. And all they have to do is trust God to achieve victory and peace in the 10%. That's it. So there's only 10% to go, and by our scripture reading, you know that they failed royally. The phrase was used nine times. They did not drive out. They did not drive out. They did not drive out. Here's what's so stunning, y'all. The book of Judges, you know what it's primarily about? Failure. And then more failure. And then when you think it gets bad, there's a worse failure. And it is a comprehensive book of comprehensive failure, spiritually, morally, relationally, economically. Even their plants fail. Their agriculture fails. Everything fails. Relationships and marriages fail. Community and national pride fails. Self-esteem fails. Everything in Judges fails. And I'm here to tell you, it's incredible good news. I want you to watch how failure starts right out of the gate. Look at verses 1 through 3. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? 
The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, pay attention. I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come up with me into the territory allotted to me that we may fight against the Canaanites. God said, Judah, go. Judah said, Simeon, you and I go. Now, that makes sense militarily. Two armies are always better than one, are they not? But the moment that Judah said, Judah and Simeon go, instead of what God said, Judah, you go, that is a faithless act. It is the beginning and a watermark of, we should read it and say, oh my word, God said, Judah, you're supposed to go. And Judah said, no, I'm going to take Simeon too. Because they didn't really trust that God would achieve the victory and peace. They were trusting in two armies to do it. And so begins the book of Judges. Right in verse 1 through 3. You know what's fascinating too is that the rest of the chapter is a catalog of failure. Ten straight reports of failure. Nine times that phrase. They did not drive them out. Now how is all this failure helpful for us? How is it? I mean there's. I want to say there are hundreds of reasons of how this is helpful for you and me. Hundreds. I mean, your view of sin, it's so helpful. View of grace, it's so helpful. Who God is, is so helpful. Who we are is so helpful. Wouldn't you like someone to come alongside you and say, brother, this is reality. This is the way the world really is. Wake up. You're in Disneyland. This is what's true. Someone that loves you enough to come alongside you and said, man, do you want to walk in reality? Do you want to be a real person? Do you want to be what everyone's starving for today? Authentic? Judges is loaded with it. That kind of help and failure. Loaded with a future glory that actually gets pressed in and becomes really real. And tasted. But I'm not going to mention any of those. I just have one. One helpful, powerful reality for you in Judges' failure. Are you ready? Here it is. The failure in Judges makes really clear what the Bible is not. The Bible is not a book of virtues. The Bible is not a book of inspirational stories. The Bible is not a book of moral examples that you and I are supposed to follow. And I want to say this, that this makes the Bible utterly unique in a world of religions and a world of sacred texts. And all the religions and all the sacred texts out there, all I'm going to say right now is that this makes the Bible unique. Doesn't mean it's the truth. This is not the argument for the truth, though it is the truth. What I'm saying is, you have within Christianity and the Bible something utterly unique than any other religion in the face of the planet and any other sacred text. You take any religion and it's based on like Confucianism or Islam or Buddhism. It's based on the the moral teachings of the founder. You remove the founder out. You still have the moral teachings because it's based on the moral teachings. Christianity is not based on the moral teachings of God. Or Jesus or the church. It is based on something else completely different. And because it is, it's life. Do you know that even the heroes and judges 
that as the heroes move along, they're brilliantly heroic, but they're still flawed. But each one gets more flawed as the story goes along until we end with Samson, who actually is my favorite. Go figure. And you know what else? Each of their heroic efforts at judging starts off some level of potency. It accomplishes a lot. Each act gets less and less potent with deliverance to where there's not a lot of change that happens. Again with Samson, my favorite. Knowing that the Bible is not about a book of virtues is very, very helpful to you and me. You know why? Number one, it just saves us a lot of wasted time reading the Bible. You know what? I mean, think about all the time we waste looking for moral examples, doing character studies to fix us, to follow, to improve our life, to do how and why and whatever on how to live. And the Bible isn't about that. Oh, oh, I can watch another ball game. So much wasted time doing that. So that's number one. There's a lot of wasted time that goes away. Number two, number two is you start, if you don't read it that way anymore, it starts, I guarantee you, if you stop reading the Bible that way, your spiritual life will do a 180 just because you don't read it that way. And I guarantee you'll be a a happier person. So immediately your spiritual, your spirituality improves and your spiritual sanity if you stop reading the Bible that way, if you don't make the Bible into that kind of document. That's a pretty big, that's, that's drastic, right? Here's the other thing. When you get open the Bible, you can either cut with the grain of the text or cut against the grain of the text. If you cut with the grain of the text, you're releasing the power and the life in the text. If you cut against the grain of the text, you're cutting against the grain of the text. If you're reading the Bible as a book of virtues, if you're all involved in character studies to figure out how to follow moral codes and what to keep, you know, the what would Jesus do stuff and imitation, you're cutting against the grain of the text. That's not the function and the purpose of the Bible. You're making it go in a direction it's not meant to go. So if you stop doing that, now you're releasing the power and the life in the text. So failure in judges is great news. It's a great gift. It's a great gift that actually teaches us how to read the Bible rightly and release the power and the life in the text. And you're wondering, well, what is that? And that's, we're just going to have to figure that out as we go along. As we do judges, it's going to become more and more clear what the grain of the text is and how to start cutting with that grain, okay? Why is judges in the Bible? One, it makes clear what the Bible is not. Two, because it's a story about you, and a story about me. I mean, can you feel the excitement in that first verse? I mean, they long for home and they know it's close. They're inquiring of the Lord. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, man, who's going to go up for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Israelites are inquiring. This isn't God that says, hey, man, when are you all going to pray and ask me who's going first? It's like they are so full of faith, y'all. They are Hope is on a high. They are as bold as a lion. They have this lion-like confidence. They have an overwhelming sense that God is with them. It is a spiritual power and high that they're on. They're ready. 
No, no, I just want you to look how the chapter ends, verse 34, 36. Do you know that Joshua begins and ends by giving the, the borders of the promised land? Here's the borders. This is where, this is what I'm giving you. It ends by showing you what the borders are. 90% of it's done, 10% of it's not, right? Well, how does Judges begin and end? Well, let's go take it. How does it end? With the borders of the Canaanites, not the borders of the Israelites. Oh, man, and then look at the verbs. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan, which is an Israelite tribe. The Amorites persisted in the region, pressed, persisted. All of a sudden, they meet up with pressure and persistence. Evil won't go away. This is how it's a story about you and me. We have the gospel telling us, coaching us, persuading us, being proclaimed to us, telling us that not just 90% of the land's been conquered, but 100%. That it's already achieved a comprehensive salvation, completely accomplished, completely performed, completely worked by another person. It's done, it's over, victory, peace, milk and honey, home, he won. We regularly see God do amazing things in our life, and we regularly see God do amazing things in other people's lives, and yet it's still hard to trust him in those moments when you're pressed. When sin and evil persist in your own life, in those you love, and in the world outside of you. Last week, Ty started getting these weird sores all over him. Head, arms, okay, he's not here, good. Head, arms, back, neck, nose. We thought ringworm from the puppy because the new puppy we had had ringworm, so we had to go through that whole trauma. But the sores wouldn't go away. So now I'm concerned. Just some, some advice for you folks, parents particularly. If you're concerned, never look to the internet for a diagnosis, Okay. <laughs> So I was making Nancy, taking, you take, you take Ty tomorrow to Dr. Kemper. I want it done now. I've got to know what's going on with him, right? Well, she's taking him to Dr. Kemper, and it's during the time that I'm doing Google meetings, you know, with, I told you that a bunch of pastors, friends, were getting together, and we're doing judges together, right? And so, you know, after we finally figured out how to turn on the sound and the visual, they got it first, and they're all trying to tell me at once, do this, do that. I'm like, wait, wait, I don't know how to do this. Patience. Finally, I got it. So then we had our meeting. In the middle of our meeting, Nancy calls. I said, guys, I got, I got, to, I got to take this call. They had no idea what was going on. I take the call. I'm like, okay, what's, what's going on? What's the result? She tells me real quickly. Right? She says, sweetie, it was just a strip kind of thing. I'm like, okay, okay. I get back on, and I tell the guys what had happened. I told them what I was thinking, and then I told them this, and it's rather embarrassing. This is what I said to them. I didn't want to have to live through what we were about to preach on Sunday. I didn't want to do that. I don't think I could have survived that. Could you? Here's what we do. We don't trust God 
We don't trust in God's achieved victory and rest over all evil. We still think in our heart of hearts that we've got to achieve some victory and some rest for ourselves. And you know how I know that? Because there's two ways that, that we do what the Israelites do. Because when they didn't trust God to achieve the victory and rest, and it was only 10%, remember, that's all they had. They had 90% of it already done. They've seen it. And they heard the stories about God taking them out of Egypt. They had a lot of good news being piled on them, piled on them, and they still, when they're pressed and evil's persistent and it doesn't go the way you thought. I prayed the prayer. Why do I still struggle with this? I've been studying the Bible for a whole year. I fasted for a whole year. What's going on? When things just don't come out the way you thought they were, when evil and sin persist and press in against you, it's so easy. It's so easy to not trust in an achieved victory. It's so easy to start thinking you've got to achieve the victory. And there's two ways that this happens. Number one, that's why I had us read, well, I mentioned it. Remember 22 and 26, that Canaanite trader that traders his whole city to the Israelites, then he books and heads to another town and just names the new city that just got destroyed, Luds. You know what he does? What the Israelites did there, they compromised with the evil. They formed a treaty with it. They made a truce, a covenant. They said to evil and sin, let's be friends. You're really not that bad. You're really not that devastating and destructive. And that's the Canaanite way. That's what we're going to figure out. The Canaanites love to do that. It's a, it's a way of... And the Israelites, it's so fascinating, is they're now living just like a Canaanite. They're actually living like God doesn't exist, like he achieved the victory. So now they're on their own, and they have to figure it out, or they have to deal with it. So they've got to work on their own to figure out a way to do this thing, right? The Canaanite way. The other way to deal with evil is, guess what? It's found in verse 28. Here it is. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they did not drive them out completely. This is phenomenal. You know what's happening here? The Israelites have become the Egyptians. They started enslaving the Canaanites. If you don't compromise with evil, make a covenant with it, become friends with it, you know what you try to do? Control it. Enslave it. Master it by your own power and effort and goodness. I mean, look at, look at that phrase, when Israel grew strong. Israel probably grew strong. God enabled them to grow strong, but then they probably... Well, we know they did. They started thinking their strength was in and of themselves. And anytime we think we're strong, you know what happens to us? We turn into self-righteous people. We turn into moralists. And we take our Bibles, and because we do so, we make it about living and ethics. And if we're a moralist, we have to turn the Bible into inspirational stories about our morals and how good we are and how we achieve. This way, trying to control evil, thinks effort and personal goodness is going to master sin and evil. And it can't. Do you see what's happening here? You can't form a covenant with evil and you can't master it. It has to be completely conquered driven out 
So why is Judges in the Bible? Number one, make clear what the Bible is not. We got that one. Number two, it's a story about us. It's a story about you and me, right? And then number three, to lead you home. How? It takes an angel of the Lord to do it. Look at Judges 2.1. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt, brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. Do you see what he's saying? The angel of the Lord shows up. You got failure upon failure upon failure upon failure. Ten failures listed here. Nine times they didn't drive them out. The people are decimated. They're fractured. They're already sensing a disintegration going on in their life. It's not what they thought it was going to be. And now the angel of the Lord shows up and he says man I'm the one that delivered you out of Egypt I'm the one that achieved victory and rest in the land and then he comes from Gilgal and when he came from Gilgal every Israelite there held their breath they're like this can't be true is this really true because Gilgal in Joshua 5 is where God forgave the sin of Israel In Galgal in chapter five is where God said, you know what, I am gonna form a covenant with you and I'm gonna bind myself to you in love and in grace. I'm gonna bind myself with cords and we're gonna put your hand out, I'm gonna put mine out, it's gonna be our hearts. Our hearts are gonna unite it and I'm gonna bind it and I'm gonna bind it not with your performance. That's not gonna be the basis of our hearts and our relationship and our covenant. The binding's gonna be grace. Gonna be my love. Period. The angel of the Lord's response to Israel's failure is I save you. I'm your savior. You don't save yourself. Yeah, and you know what's fascinating about the angel of the Lord? Everybody gets all twisted up about who is he, who is he? Well, it's kind of clear who he is, is it not? It's not a messenger angel, the kind that says, listen, this is what God says. God says, God says, he led you out of Egypt, you fools. No, the angel says, I, I delivered you from Egypt. I brought you promised land because the angel of the Lord is a pre-incarnate Christ or at least he anticipates him and so when Jesus shows up and Jesus in his life and his death and his resurrection accomplishes the garden the land 100% milk and honey done finished over he won forgiveness of sins, a righteousness that's his very own, a driving out of that sin and evil that we think is so much out there, but most importantly, it's in here. And in his work, he drives out all the Canaanites in your life. He leads you home. So how should we respond to this kind of God? Look at verses four and five. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and they wept and they called the name of the place Bochum because they sacrificed and they sacrificed there to the Lord. 
The name bokum literally means weeping. So the whole response that this passage is leading you and I to have in light of who we are, you know what it is? Be honest about who you really are. Bokum weeping is an honest assessment of the human condition. In light of there's only one who can achieve the victory, when you begin to see there's only one who can achieve the victory, being able to look at yourself and say, I don't have the ability to do this, is the most glorious, freeing, powerful news in the whole universe. So it's a weeping, but it's a wonder. (laughs) It's a weeping that's combined with wonder. It's a trembling that's combined with trust. It's like, for real? Be honest about your sin. One of the ways we can apply it immediately is where are you making a treaty with sin? Another way we can apply it is to say this, where am I trying to enslave my sin? Where am I trying to say, oh, I can handle this, I can manage this, I can do it. I don't need someone else to drive it out. I'll drive it out. I want you to notice that both compromising with sin and trying to control sin are both the same response just from two different ends. They both are saying, we don't need the achieved victory and rest of another. We can achieve it on our own. And then go to the sacrifice. Do you see that? They go to the sacrifice. You know what they're doing? They're going to the gospel. They're going to grace. They're going where life is. They're going home. 